Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Good morning, brothers and sisters, and welcome to the Lord's Day, gathering on the first day of the week, because God is number one, and that's why we're here. What a wonderful time of the year the Advent season is, and here at the home church, it always means a great Christmas theatrical ministry. You know, this medium of dramatizing a sermon and then adding beautiful music is a powerful tool, and I suspect that it's more now than ever because of the biblical illiteracy in our world, and so Please pray this week for all those who are singing and acting and working. They're all pastors, really, serving the Lord, trying to get out the message. So would you certainly pray for them? From the cradle to the crown, an unparalleled truth is our thoughts. Now, if someone were to ask you, what is the greatest truth? you've ever learned about life, what would you say? Well, here's how some of history's most well-known people have answered. Pulitzer Prize winner and American poet Robert Frost said plainly, in three words, I can sum up everything I've learned about life. It goes on. <laughs> well said. Great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln said accurately, God is always right. I like it. Lesser known, but insightful. Not one we would trust theologically. But uh, Om the Swami said, love, laugh, and give. I love Christian books. Pragmatic Christian, Christian author Steve Farrar, one of my favorite books, said his life motto is don't screw up. <laughs> there you go. And again, of course, there's every pessimist motto. Life is difficult. Then you die. <laughs> now, what would I say? You say, well, pastor, what would you say is your greatest truth you've ever learned about life? Here's what it is. Definitely get grilled onions on your in and out double-double. That's my favorite thing. No, actually, mine would be this, accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And why? Because in the end, honestly, that is the only thing that matters. Literally, the only thing that matters is have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, today's edition of our series, current series, from the cradle to the crown, is regarding the most well-known passage in all the Bible, the description of the birth of Jesus Christ. But it's more than just a narrative of circumstances surrounding his birth. At first glance, it just seems kind of biographical and uh, sort of historical. But the fact of the matter is, it is unparalleled truth. It is the world's greatest truth. 
It is a revelation of the gospel, the true gospel. Just like what Paul told Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came into this world for one reason, mainly, and that was to save sinners. And so it's my prayer today that if you're unfamiliar with the text that we're going through, your heart will just rejoice at its beauty and its fullness. And for those who've heard it before, perhaps even many times, the Holy Spirit will give you fresh, beautiful, rewarding insight, as he did for me this week. My heart is so full this morning. Now, as we prepare for Christmas services and family celebrations over the next few weeks, I trust we'll not be like the stressed out mom that I read about this week. She was preparing for a large Christmas Eve family gathering. She'd been giving out orders like a drill sergeant. Pick up your things. Don't get your clothes dirty. Put away your toys. Well, her little four-year-old daughter had been underfoot all day, so she sent her to the next room to play with their wooden nativity set. As mother scurried around setting the table, she overheard her daughter talking to her toys in the same tone of voice mother had used. I don't care who you are. Get those camels out of my living room. Well, I don't want you to be stressed this morning. I hope you'll just sit back, and I hope you'll take in God's wonderful word. Because this morning, God has a message for you from Luke chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful passage. My heart is so just full and overwhelmed at the amazing depth of this passage. And I pray that, Lord, uh, you'll just help me, Lord, to say whatever needs to be said and Perhaps something that I was thinking that I shouldn't say or that I haven't thought of and I should say, Lord, you just bring it to mind. Help us to hear well and that each one would not let their mind wander, but the Lord, you would set deeply, not just the biographical facts, but the truths, the deep and abiding truths, deep in every soul. May we be different, changed forever because of this truth in Christ's name. We're in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, the first few verses are surely the most widely read in all of the Bible because it is the true story of what Christmas is all about. It is the source of songs and carols and cards and celebrations and gifts and books and dramas and pageants and so much more since the time that it occurred. 2,000 years ago, on a night like any other night in Israel, with no fanfare, no great coronation of a king that was to be born, the creator of the universe, the eternal God, entered humanity as a baby. In our series, in chapter 1 so far, we've already gone through the birth of John the baptizer. We've heard the annunciation of the angel Gabriel to Mary that a child would be born to her as a virgin and that that child would be the son of the most high God. We've heard her told that he would be the blessing that was promised to Abraham. He would be also the blessing that was promised to David. In our series thus far, we have seen some amazing truths. 
an unquestionable record, an unbelievable reveal, an unequaled honor, an unmatched picture last Sunday, and then today, an unparalleled truth. Five of them. And today I would like to share them with you. Five features of life's greatest truth. First of all, let's look at the setting of the gospel. And that's the greatest truth of life, the gospel. The Holy Spirit chose to inform us of world conditions at the time of the birth of Christ. Interesting, isn't it? That he would bring up all these political things. I've heard some people say, oh, you're too political. Well, the Holy Spirit was political too. Look, he's going to talk about how things were in the world at that time. He does so to give us a backdrop to tell us just how amazing this story really is. And so let's go to verse number one. In fact, uh, why don't you just read it out loud with me? Verse number one in the King James Version. Have it here on the screens for you. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Let's do that again, all right? And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, these were the days of Roman occupation in Israel. In fact, the occupation wasn't just in Israel, it was over much of the Middle Eastern countries, including parts of Asia, actually, and Europe and Northern Africa. But it was not only days of occupation, it was days of taxation, something that governments seem to have loved for as long as they've been around. Rome's idea of taxation seems to match what the great capitalist Ronald Reagan said, government's view of the economy could be summed up in a few short phrases. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. True that. Well, those two things, taxation and regulation by a foreign government, really, in their own homeland, really bothered, as you might imagine, the Jewish people. And it says, it came in those days that there went out a decree the word decree there is a emperor's edict. The Greek word is dogma. And it refers to a fixed authoritative decision with penalties attached if you didn't follow that. And it says it came from none other than Caesar Augustus. Now the name Caesar is a title like king, or emperor, or pharaoh. It's not actually a name. And Augustus is also not a name actually an adjective. It means august or someone highly revered. It could even mean a holy one because that's the same name they used for their pagan gods. And in fact, Caesar Augustus was viewed as if he were a god. And so the question in our mind then is, who was Caesar Augustus? Well, he is none other than history's famous Gaius Octavius, the nephew of Julius Caesar, who is the founder of the Roman Empire. He reigned over as a Roman emperor from 27 BC until his death in AD 14. He is the one that began the Rome as an imperial cult instead of a dictatorship. Gaius dramatically enlarged the empire 
He annexed Egypt, most of the Middle East, northern Africa, and he also conquered Spain. Gaius was an amazing leader. He also developed a mammoth network of roads, roads uh, just going everywhere, all over the Middle East. He established a standing army, official police and firefighting services in Rome. And one of the bedrocks of his administration was the infamous Roman system of taxation. Everybody got taxed. Slaves got taxed. Everybody got taxed. All of this facilitated, of course, not only a rapid enlargement of his empire, but as God would so have it, it helped the spread of the gospel. It was incredible how God used this. And it says it came to pass in those days. What days are those? Well, those are the days of Caesar Augustus. Yes, humanly speaking, that's what we're talking about. But actually, when we say, when it came to pass in those days, those were the days that God had arranged. You see, there are no accidental events in the history of the world. In fact, as it's often been said, history is actually his story. And so that's where we're at here. Why Solomon said, Proverbs chapter 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Folks, every king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. Isn't it amazing how God turns the water without changing the substance of the water? He doesn't just make a person do something. He just puts blockades in that water, and that water will come up to a rock, make a turn. God puts another rock in the way, and then that water goes another direction. God turns hearts without ever changing the heart. That's because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And you can know for sure God was turning the heart of Augustus here. Because when he called an edict for a census, which then led to taxation, he set the historical stage for the Messiah to be born in a place called Bethlehem, which then caused both Joseph and Mary, which was their hometown, to go back to Bethlehem. All of this in fulfillment of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, a message given some 600 years or so earlier. But thou, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me a ruler. Out of Bethlehem, a ruler will come. Who is this? Well, we know that it must be something special because it says whose goings have been from old, from everlasting. Well, I only know of one ruler whose goings have been from everlasting, and that is God. And so this was God in the flesh, born in Bethlehem. Little did Caesar know that he was accomplishing the will of God by bringing Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem at that particular time. Notice what it says, that all the world should be taxed. The world actually is the word earth, and to them it describes all the inhabited portions of the earth, or at least all the known inhabited portions of the earth. To a Roman, anything outside of the Roman Empire was an outland. To them, their empire was the world. If it was outside of the Roman Empire, it wasn't even in the world. 
They were the original xenophobes for sure. Verse number two, and this taxing was first made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Oh, why do I care about this, we think? Well, Dr. Luke, because he's so, uh, such a great researcher and the Holy Spirit gave him this, he clarifies that this was the first census in Syria. Now, the reason we need to know it was Syria, because that's where Judea, which is where Bethlehem was, was located. And why did he say it was the, sec the first one? Well, to ward off critics who would say that Quirinius actually ruled from 6 to 7 A.D. You can find that in history. Well, people say, well, there you go. There's a discrepancy in the Bible. If he ruled 6 or 7 A.D. after the birth, then this is not accurate. Well, but actually, history records that Quirinius ruled on two separate occasions, not just once, but twice, the first one being quite a bit earlier, and it was, in fact, at the time of the birth of Christ. Isn't it great to read something like the Bible that you never have to worry about it being fake news like uh, CNN? Oh, did I say that? Anyway, you know, there's a good reason why the Bible is everywhere this morning. You can find them in grocery stores and prisons and motel rooms and homes. They come in all sizes and shapes and translations and versions and styles, leather-bound, paperback, digital now. But every year, the Bible outsells every major book. Last year, over 100 million Bibles were published in the world, over 2,000 different languages. That's because the Bible is truth. And when people read it, they know this is truth. There's no lies in here. And so it's wonderful how God lays it out for us in verse number two. Now let's look at verses three and four. And they all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So due to heavy-handed government reach, this good young man, about 14 or 15 years old, Joseph, reluctantly brought his pregnant, very pregnant, betrothed wife who was about 13 at the worst possible time in the middle of the winter without nearly any comfort, some 85 or 90 miles from Nazareth where they lived up to their hometown in the foothills beneath Jerusalem, a little place known as Bethlehem. It was about 2,500 feet above sea level. Hence, by the way, Luke's accurate description where it says they went up from Galilee. They went up out of the city of Nazareth. By the way, a spiritual footnote here, Bethlehem means the house of bread, not the house of ham, by the way, the house of bread a fitting birth site for Jesus. Because in John chapter 8, we're told Jesus is the bread of life. And if you will take a big bite of Jesus, you'll get all the food you ever need. Well, now notice here that this journey for the infant Jesus was much farther, however, than just 80 miles. Mom and dad may have gone 80 miles, but that little baby, no, he left his place in heaven at God's right hand. To come to earth's cradle and to be here 
on earth. And ultimately, he was stretched out on a cross to die, was buried in a borrowed tomb, but the journey was still not over. He then conquered death. He left the tomb and he walked again among men and ascended to heaven. And then the journey is still not in because someday he's going to return crowned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when he came, I'm telling you what, it was a long way for him. But that's the true Christmas story from the cradle to the crown for sure. Now look at verse number five. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Now the Jewish people were and still are very insistent on accuracy in ancestry. The whole land of Canaan was divided, you may remember, under Joshua, into tribal areas about 1,500 years before the time we're talking about. Within those tribal areas, the towns and villages were, they belonged to certain families. Every seven years, the land would go back to the original owner. So very careful notes had to be taken care of, detailed records. Both Joseph and Mary were of the lineage from David, and they were from Bethlehem. Friends, there are no accidental occurrences with a sovereign God. Had Caesar Augustus declared this taxation three months earlier, she would have not been ready to give birth. Had it been after, he wouldn't have been able to be born in Bethlehem. But he was. God knew exactly how long. How many know this morning that God still directs history? They are, God still is over mankind. Well, verse number six, and so it was, <laughs> and so it was. And by the way, when God makes something happen, and so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Now we're not told how long the days were. Some have suggested it might be actually several days. It might have been three days or four days, but you know how crazy predicting labor and delivery can be even in this day and age. Some wise guy said, uh, God created childbirth to give women the chance to experience what it's like when a guy catches a cold. <laughs> That's not nice, but anyway. So she spent hours in labor in a place with no comforts, no doctors, no nurses, her mom wasn't there. Her sister wasn't there. She was there going through labor. All she had was a teenaged husband and God on her side. And finally, at history's glorious moment, the cry of life came. And there birthed into this world the mighty God, as the Old Testament calls him, Elion, was confined to a body about seven pounds in weight, and placed into the hands of two teenage people. For them, for anybody, nobody could have fathomed the impact of what was going on. Impossible. This is the most unlikely but incredible of births. Let's look at verse 7 now. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, for some reason, Dr. Luke is... Very careful to tell us that this was her firstborn son. 
That means she actually had other children. That was the suggestion, and in fact, that's true. Matthew chapter 13 tells us of the rest. Jesus at least had four half-brothers. We're given the names in Matthew 13, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, not the same that betrayed. So he had four half-brothers, and in that same passage it says sisters, plural. And then with Jesus, that means seven children that Joseph and Mary had. That's a pretty good-sized family right there, seven children. Note seven, that's a prominent number in Scripture. And they were what you would call a blended family. They weren't, didn't all have the same mother and father. All had the same mom, but not the same dad. You know, I think it's just a reminder here for families, whether they're young families or older families, whether they're large families or smaller, blended, nuclear, single, or just a husband and wife, God loves you. And God loves all families. And here, a great reminder that God loves children. Well, it says that she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Nothing unusual about that. For a Jewish mother, the word swaddled in the English means wrapping. When our little ones were around, we used to call it burrito baby. We'd flop them like a little tortilla, you know, and all tuck them in. They loved it. What was swaddling? Well, they would take long strips of cloth and wrap the arms and the legs and the body tightly. It was for warmth. It was for security. And it was called swaddling. But think of it for a minute. Rags, torn rags, as it were. Here he was, the king of kings, royalty, clothed in rags. Physically, this little baby looked like every other child. He didn't have a halo over his head. He didn't glow, although I'm sure he, they were just as proud as they could be of this beautiful little child. It says in the King James Version that he was placed in a manger. And that is the Greek word phatne, P-H-A-T-N-E. It means a feeding trough. So they placed him in a feeding trough. By the way, it never actually says that Jesus was born in a stable. We get that from the fact that he was placed in a feeding trough. It's not likely that a feeding trough was inside anywhere. It says there was no room in the inn. That just means there was no place in the lodging uh, that was there. It doesn't refer that there was an actual inn like the Motel 6. This was, wasn't the first uh, location, the Motel 6. But it probably was a public shelter of some sort, more like a campground with maybe enclosed walls and maybe even some kind of roof. Why was there no room for Ma Mary and Joseph? Well, as we said, Augustus Caesar had said, everybody needs to go to your hometown. You're going to be registered and you're going to be taxed. Well, that meant Roman officials. That also meant Jewish elders. And so, being the officials, they would get the first rooms in any inn that were there. And so most of the spots were taken by them. Then there were Jewish travelers who were going back to their hometown. And so there they were. They apparently came late to the party, and there was nobody, no place that they could be inside. And so they took little baby Jesus, and they put him in a feeding trough. Being that it was a feeding trough, it was probably then where the pack animals were, donkeys and camels. And the Bible says he was there. We don't know long, but it says for days. 
imagine, you know, if you and I imagine that somehow Jesus was born in little pictures we see of this very clean, freshly swept county fair stable, you're missing the whole point, folks. This was scandalous. Here he was in the midst of this place with all the stinks and the smells and the sights. Our pure Savior birthed into the trembling hands of a young carpenter who was fearful and clumsy and he had no idea what he was doing. This little baby's arms were waving helplessly. His face was grimacing and his cry pierced the night. No child has ever been born into this world with any lower prospects. By the way, we must always remember that that is where Christianity began and where it always begins. God comes to the needy. He comes to the poor in spirit. He came all the way down to a stable, the smell of a stable. A picture, I think, of much like us as sinners. We stink in the sight of God. And God came down to this stinking world so that he could give us eternal life. And today, folks, he it's interesting, isn't it, that there was no room for Jesus. Oh, there were room for the leaders. There were room for the businessmen. But there was no room for Jesus. And today, I'm afraid to say it's often the same. People who are the uppity-ups don't often have room for Jesus. What a Savior. Five features this morning of the life's greatest truth. The gospel, that's the greatest truth. What was the setting of the gospel? So the Holy Spirit gives us this amazing backdrop. Now let's go to the actual statement of the gospel, verses 8 through 10. So a few hours after this monumental miracle birth, there's an announcement, a statement is made. Look at verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, we're going to make a statement to the world. We're going to give out this great message, the gospel. You can have eternal life. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to live eternally with Him. And so He's going to make an announcement. Who do you get to tell the announcement? Well, the probably the least likely people on earth you would have asked to do this great PR thing would be to go to some shepherds in the middle of the night out in the field. I mean, I'm telling you, this was the founder of the Christian faith who was being birthed. You might have gone to the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of Israel, or you might have gone to the temple to talk to the prevailing community of faith. You might have gone to some group of devout businessmen or some higher educational institution. Or today we would go to an influencer, someone who had a big following. But the last people you would go to would be these blue-collar shepherds. Now, there was nothing shameful about their profession, but it was kind of an entry-level type of profession, a job actually often even given to children and youth to do. It was minimum wage for sure. But they were good, hardworking men, godly men. The fact that they were men, it was overnight, and kind of a dangerous out there in the dark. And so they were in the field, middle of the night, being loyal to their job, protecting the sheep. So what did they do? Well, they might pass the time with a wind flute. They might strum some kind of a stringed instrument. They might tell stories, you know, as guys like to do. Certainly they were trying to stay warm. 
was winter, foothills, much like Southern California type weather, still cool, maybe not uh, freezing, freezing, but it was still cold. Some commentaries suggest that these shepherds may have well been caring for sheep that would have been offered as sacrifices. Remember now, because of the Old Testament economy, thousands of lambs and sheep were slaughtered in Israel. And because of that, they needed to have sheep that were prepared for that. How appropriate then that the announcement of the final and full sacrifice, the Lamb of God, sacrificed from the foundation of the world, was made to the shepherds who likely took care of the sheep that were to be offered as a picture of that same coming sacrifice. And so verse 8 and verse 9 now, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. An angel comes, probably Gabriel, we're not told, but probably. And if that's not enough, the text adds, and the glory of the Lord shone around about. Now, as we've gone through Scripture, we've noticed that God is not like we are. He doesn't have a body. He's a spirit, the Bible says. He doesn't have physical form. But whenever God does reveal himself in Scripture, every single time there is glowing, there is shining. In fact, in Hebrews it says our God is a consuming fire. So an angel, fire in the heavens, verse 10, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for I, behold, I bring you good tidings and great joy, which shall be to all people. Now I'm sure the shepherds thought something like, Don't be afraid. <laughs> yeah, right. It's the middle of the night. The heavens are full of the fire of God, and we're talking to an extraterrestrial right here. Okay, nothing to be afraid about for sure. But truly, these men didn't have to be afraid of God because, as the verse said, fear not, I bring you good tidings. Apparently, these men were believers. They had trusted in the Messiah for salvation because the angel wouldn't have said, well, I have good tidings for you if they weren't truly born again. They had made them righteous by the blood of Christ, Christ that was to come. It says they bring good tidings. That is the verb euangeliso. If you looked at the word in Greek, you would see that it's the word for evangelize. By the, word, by the way, the word evangelize is not actually an English word. It's one of those transliterated Greek words that we use, but we've come to realize what it means. It is just a word that means to tell the good news. And so these, this angel gave the good news, the saving news. What is that news? It is a news that you can have eternal life. And what happens? It says, it is a news that brings great joy. In fact, that's actually the word hilarious laughter. Hilarious laughter. I mean, so excited. Folks, it's like you just won the lotto when you get saved. Hilarious. I can't believe it. I'm so excited. As 1 Peter 1 says, you rejoice when you understand this. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I tell you what, it is exciting when you truly know the gospel, the setting of the gospel, the statement of the gospel, and now number three, the scale of the gospel. Who is it for? Who is it to? Is it just to them, to Mary and Joseph? Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. 
for unto you. Don't miss the phrase, unto you. Was he saying to the shepherds? Yes. But it's plural there, and it's more than just the shepherds. It was to Mary and Joseph, but it's more than just the shepherds and Mary and Joseph. It was to Israel, but it's more than just them. It is to you and I. Jesus came to redeem all humanity. That's why this is good news. The same Savior who had open arms in the cradle is the same Savior who has open arms today to any person, any person worldwide. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Notice what it says. This day. This day. Born unto you this day. Folks, there's no waiting with Jesus. If you want to be saved this day, you can be saved this day. I hate shopping lines, don't you? I hate them. And I don't know what it is about lines, but it seems like every line I pick is always the longest line. It doesn't even make any difference if I try reverse psychology and pick the longest line, thinking that, well, it'll probably end up being the shortest line. No, it ends up being the longest line. Of course, my skills could pay off someday if we're talking about lines at the cemetery. That would be good. But the point is, there's no lines with Jesus. If you come to Jesus, you'll have his full attention. Come to God, and he will save you. If someone came to your door today and said, knocked on your door and said, Jesus wants to see you, what would you do? You would say, yes, I want to see Jesus. Run to Jesus because he will save you today. Then it says he's come to the city of David. They didn't say Bethlehem. That was good enough, but they were connecting this to the promise. This is the city of David. The Messiah is born in the very city that God promised David, David's promise, the Davidic promise. They were making a reference to the Messiah's kingship. A Savior is born. A Savior is born. Not an educator, nothing wrong with an educator, but it wasn't an educator, wasn't a reformer, a politician, or even a pastor. No, a Savior. And I will tell you this morning what America needs is a savior. What this world needs is a savior. You know, it's amazing to me how little people know about being saved. You would think with gospel churches and the tracks and everything going out that it would be as clear, but it is, seems to be still so muddy in people's minds. I talk to people all the time that just have such an unclear understanding of what it means to be saved. In fact, I've noticed that in many churches, they don't even use the term anymore, be saved. Like it's some kind of too churchy sounding word or something. But folks, Jesus is a savior. He's a, he came into this world to save people from their sins. And this world has a sin problem. I realize this world has a financial problem and has all kinds of other problems. But the major problem of this world is a sin problem. Well... He's a savior, but in order to save, he has to be the anointed one. And that's why they said, the savior who is Christ, the Lord. Christos, it is the Greek word for anointed one. This is Father God's anointed kingly son. Later on in life, Pilate confronted Jesus and he said, are you a king? 
And he said, you said it. It's true. But just so we're clear, my kingdom is not of this world. By the way, he is going to make this world his kingdom. Revelation 20 says he, that's the case. But then it says, Christ Jesus, the Lord. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is God and that he is number one. That's why we have church on Sunday. It's the first day of the week because we believe that Jesus is Lord. By the way, for a Jewish person to say that Jesus is Lord, that was just, would just set so many things in motion against them. Not only would their Jewish non-believing leadership be against them, but it was really treason against the government, Roman government, because you had to say Caesar Augustus is Lord. He is God. They had emperor worship. And that's why so many Christians were put to death because they said, no, Jesus is Lord. Now, if they had said Jesus is a God, no problem. But he isn't a God. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. And that's what they said. Jesus is Lord. By the way, that is the major confession of Christianity. If we don't get that, we don't get it. In fact, Romans 10 and verse 9 says, if you want to be saved, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And this is the sign, verse 12, this is the sign, you're going to find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, a feeding trough. Now a baby in a swaddling clothes, probably not a confirming sign. But a newborn in swaddling clothes, lying in a feed trough next to donkeys and camels, yeah, no king of royal blood has ever had such a birth as this. You can be sure that this was an amazing gospel. Now, number four, not only the setting of the gospel, the statement of the gospel, and the scale of the gospel, now let's get to the very soul of what the gospel is all about, verses 13 and 14. Okay, so you're the shepherds. Life to this point has been pretty plain. They're probably younger men, maybe 20s, maybe 30s. But all of a sudden, all heaven breaks loose. Ooh. Verse 13, and suddenly, the Greek word there is epiphanies. There was a, with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying. All of a sudden, so they've been talking to this angel. There's the sky on fire with the glory of God. And then, if that wasn't enough, all of a sudden, God gives them eyes to see. Kind of like that servant in the Old Testament. They see a host. The word means army. There's an army of heavenly angels are all around. Now, God created angels. I don't think any angel, they're not omnipresent, so... I don't think some stayed in heaven while everybody else was down here on earth. I think everybody said, let's go. Every, you coming? Let's go. We're going. And so there they were. The skies were filled with all of these angels, all of them. And it says this heavenly army, that's what the word means, this heavenly army was praising God. Men, military, heavenly military men praising God. Now, I love people singing. I love it. I love crowds singing. 
I love to hear ladies singing. And when we were in Chile, they kind of did back and forth singing. The ladies would sing and then the men would sing. But I will tell you, there is nothing like men singing. And I, my wife showed me this little video not long ago of some military men who were singing. These men, they were Marines that were Christian Marines that were all singing, hundreds of them just singing praise to God. I'm telling you what, it just brings goosebumps singing. Now look what happens here. What were they singing? Verse 14, glory to God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Glory to God. Now notice the proper order. God has to get glory before there can be peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest, then peace on earth. This one worst hymn is entitled in the, glat, in the Latin Gloria in Excelsis Deo. And so, high glory to God. Highest glory of God here. There, everything speaks to the glory of God. You go outside and see a beautiful flower, that speaks to the glory of God. To see a beautiful sunrise like I saw this morning, that speaks to the glory of God. But the highest glory of God is that God the Son came to this earth and He came so that He could save us and He came in such a way. That's why it's the highest glory. There's never been a moment like this. And on the earth, peace, peace, goodwill towards men. Peace for whom? Christmas really doesn't bring peace to people unless it says what it says here, unless they have God's good will on them. Here's how one translation reads it, on earth peace to men whom his favor rests. You'd say, well, how do I know if God's favor rests on me? How can I have the peace of God? Well, Paul said it clearly in Romans 15 verse 13. He said, if you want peace, if you want God's favor, then here's how it comes. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. When? In believing. In believing. And peace here is not just the absence of war. The Jewish word for peace is shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean, you know, you stop shooting at each other. Shalom means wholeness and prosperity and security and true completeness. And that only comes when you have eternal life given by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so there are five features in this little passage here to verse 20. Life's greatest truth, the setting, the statement, the scale, the soul, and then finally the scope. Now, we don't know how long this praise service went on, but I'm telling you, these shepherds were just transfixed by all these male-sounding voices in the sky, the fiery sky, and they're singing praise to God. They're blown away. Well, when they finally get their attention, verse 15, it came to pass as the angels were gone away. I'm sure they wouldn't have went into Bethlehem had they not gone away. The shepherds said to one another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass which the Lord hath made known unto us. So it's the middle of the night. Most fields are a mile or two outside of those little towns. They would have had to find somebody to watch the sheep, or somehow, maybe they corralled them or did something. Who knows what they did, but they somehow took care of the sheep, 
they then took a bit of time to get into Bethlehem, and then they started door knocking, trying to figure out, where is this baby? And so they come into the city, and we, we got to see this thing. By the way, it says, this thing which has come to pass, the word thing there is the Greek word rhema. So this word is what they were saying, this word. This word we just got, we, we got to go. And so they've got to, they said, we got to go. We got to find this baby who's in a feeding trough. And when our little ones were young, 40 plus years ago, if we were on vacation, we'd pull out a drawer and we'd put the little baby in the drawer there. And little Evie fit right in. We'd just close her in there. Well, we've never put one of our babies in a feeding trough, I can tell you that. I want you to notice what these men did, though. They got a word, a rhema, it says. They believed it, and what did they do? They went. That's a pretty good preaching out life right there. They got a word, they believed it, and they went. And our lives are changed as we hear and we go. Verse 16, they came with haste, found Mary and Joseph. Now, it says they found them. That means they were knocking on doors. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. What? What do you want? Who are you? I, so we're shepherds, and we're out there, and so, you know, they had to, and have you heard of a baby being born? No, get out of here. Okay, fine. Okay. Go to the next place. Hey, have you heard about a baby? Well, we heard some screaming down the way here. I don't know. In the middle of the night, scruffy, grubby shepherds, they finally find Joseph and Mary. So, did you have a baby? Yep. Is your baby here? Yep. Just like last night? Yep. So, could we see? And they said, well, yeah, over there. Say, he's in a, he's in a feeding trough. Yep. <laughs> well, where this is. So, they start, they start dancing. Can you see all these shepherds just dancing? Oh, this is the day. This is the, this is the, what we just heard about. And Mary and Joseph are like, what in the world are these crazy guys? I'm sure they wanted to tell their part of the story, too. Verse 17, when they saw it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. So they spend some time with Mary and Joseph, and then it says, they make known abroad. Everywhere they went. Now, in my mind's eye, this was early in the morning. They were out there telling everybody they could about the fact they had just seen the Christ child. The anointed of God, the Messiah has come. Our nation is saved. You are saved. You can have eternal life. These guys could not, no, they would not shut up. They told it far and wide, just like we're going to do this week. Far and wide. And as you see this story, I'm telling you what, it is going to be amazing. Tell everybody, folks. Be, be one of those shepherds this week. Just, I can't shut up about this. You have got to come. You've got to come. You've got to hear this. You've got to listen. Please come. Be a shepherd this week. Verse 18, all that heard it wondered at those things which are told them. They wondered. I wish the next verse said, they wondered and they ran to Bethlehem to see the Christ child. But unfortunately, most commentaries think that they just wondered, but that was it went on with their life. There are many people, sadly, who get a touch and get a feeling, but that's it. That's the last time they think about it. But not Mary, verse 19. She kept all these things, pondering them in her heart, deeply thinking about it. She was looking at that baby. 
looking into the heart and the very face of God. Here she was, a young teenage young lady. Her young husband was there. What was she thinking? She said, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, what, what, how is it possible to raise this child and what's he going to be like? And I'm telling you, there was a lot, of, a lot of thinking going on in her spirit. But her hungry heart wanted to know everything there was to know about God. And notice verse 20, it says, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen It was told unto them. you got to go back to work. I mean, it would be nice to just spend all your time praising, but you got to go back to work. But while they were at work, notice what it says. They definitely lived their life for the glory and the praise of God. And they just, they were different people. They were different. They had really met the Savior that they believed in. Folks, someday that Savior is coming back. And that Savior whose feet came to this earth and were scratched by the, the straw and the hurts of this earth, someday going to set those nail-scarred feet on the Mount of Olives, and then he's coming back. And when he comes, I trust that you won't say, I have no room for you, because my friend, if you have no room for him in this life, the Bible is real clear, he has no room for you in the next. Our heads are bowed and our eyes. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.